Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Greenball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Ground Buster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Are you looking for the best suspension technology for your sport ATV? Look no further than Elka Suspension, the industry leader in sport ATV suspension technology. With championship wins in prestigious events such as the Dakar Rally, SCORE, Best in the Desert, ATV MX, Cross Country, and Works, Elka Suspension has established itself as the go-to choice for athletes and enthusiasts alike. But they don't just stop at ATVs. They're constantly expanding into new markets, including UTVs, trucks, SUVs, pit bikes, snowmobiles, and more. Their commitment to innovation and quality means they're always looking to improve and adapt so you can enjoy a smooth ride wherever you go. Want to learn more about what Elka Suspension can do for you? Visit their website at elkasuspension.com or give them a call at 450-655-4855. They will always be happy to answer your questions and help you find the perfect suspension solution for your needs. Welcome to DBR Racing Products, the leader in 3D modeling and innovations. Since 2015, they have been revolutionizing the industry, starting with their groundbreaking YFZ450R battery boxes. But they didn't stop there. They have continued to push the boundaries, constantly improving their design with each new version. In 2018, they introduced the game-changing Vortex EXO cage, specifically designed to securely hold the Vortex ECU in a safe and sturdy location. This breakthrough innovation ensures your ECU stays protected even in the toughest racing conditions. At DBR, they understand that every detail matters. That's why they also offer an array of essential products to enhance your racing experience. Their spark plug hold downs keep your engine firing at peak performance while their LTR breather boxes ensure optimal ventilation for your machine. Their LT250 engine skid plates are a must have for those seeking unmatched protection. Engineered to shield your engine from impacts and rough terrain, they provide the ultimate defense for your ATV. But that's not all, they've developed ProPeg mounts that allow you to use TRX450R Nerf bars, giving you greater control and maneuverability on the track. To explore their full range of innovative products and learn more about DBR Racing, 
visit their website at www.dvratv.com. You can also reach them directly at 507-828-1233. Their knowledgeable team is ready to assist you with any questions or inquiries. DVR Racing Products, where innovation meets performance, unleash the power within you. Mike, what's up, buddy? Oh, just uh, trying to figure this stuff out. Maybe you need to turn on a light or something. It's yeah, I think dark. You need to turn on a light. Uh, <laughs> Joe Tully's in the chat. Yes, you're here. Start uh, over. Uh, you didn't miss anything, Joe. Uh, we just started talking. Uh, we got Mike taken care of and uh, got him all dialed in. Uh, thanks for joining, Mike. How How's the day going? Well, it's going sweet, you know. Uh, no complaints on my end. Just tinkering around with my KTM a little bit today. I I I want to say I'm sorry, but you like those bikes, and you have you have a lot of fun riding that that machine, don't you? Oh yeah, I've got a that 890 Adventure R, and I just upgraded to the Rally suspension. That was a little pricey, but uh, I think it was worth it. Works well. Joe Tully on there's co-show <laughs> in the chat. Um, you know, we were, we were having a conversation and Joe may have, may remember this. You were telling me about the engine kits and the engines you used to do for the two thirties when they came out. Um, that was, that was a pretty good deal, wasn't it? I thought it was pretty good. Um, the majority of my customers were, CRF 150 owners that wanted to, you know, race in that uh, unlimited four-stroke national class where they had like a mini, mini bike class. And so I was able to develop a nice little 250cc package uh, derived from the CRF 150 and 230, combined some parts between the two and, you know, really built some strong motors for a, a number of guys for a few years. Until the uh, CRF 150R came out, right before the fuel injected machine or the water cooled machine came out, right. So we talked in our in our podcast about the the development of uh, being a factory rider, and I don't think that some of the people in the chats understand what it was really like for the the true factory guys in the ATV world. Um, you made a comment to me about some of the things that you see and hear online and it just blows your mind that they, that they really don't get it. Well, it's, it's understandable. I, I suppose. I mean, you know, that was what 40, almost 40, well, it was 40 years ago for me. I, I joined, uh, American Honda early in 1982, uh, was, you know, racing three wheelers from the time I was in high school. So I think it was one of a small number of uh, guys that just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, really kind of rode that whole three-wheeler wave out from kind of the beginning till the end, you know, in that regard, I, I feel I was pretty lucky. Um, did, but, did you, you, did you ride? I know you got to ride for Yamaha. Mm -hmm. Did you ride? a tri-z at all at any point i never raced a tri-z when i when i um 
left Honda at the end of 85, um, it was mainly due to a number of reasons, but um, that first 2020 segment, that thing they played on TV with Barbara Walters and the whole attack and the CPSC on three wheelers, that I used to watch that show. Uh, I used to think it was gospel, you know, like a lot of people. And uh, that first program aired the night that I won um, the national at Loretta Lynn's. So I was really on an emotional roller coaster then from winning that event, the motocross event that day, and then watching that event or that uh, TV program that night. I knew that evening, you know, that by the end of the year, the three-wheeler racing would be would be doomed. And I was right. I mean, there was a a major backlash and fallout from that airing of that show. So, yeah, from that point on, um, it was just for me feeling I was still championship worthy rider that uh, I'd have to move on to the four wheel ATVs if I wanted to continue racing. Do you think that there was validity in anything that they produced on that show? Uh, no, actually, I don't. Uh, the CPSC, a lot of those people's, the, the multitude of uh, lawsuits that were really uh, unworthy. I mean, any sponsors like Mitchell Wheel, uh, it's just anybody that had a sticker on a machine was included in these lawsuits. And it was just ridiculous. And then, so I, I think it really soured a lot of uh, potential sponsors to ATV racing, you know at that point um yeah as far as validity yeah it was just crazy you know it's just uh still some of that stuff going on honda was hit with a number of things even when i was there there a lawsuit came down from some some drunk individual took his lawnmower you know you know how they got those little levers on the push bar where you got to hold it down when you start it the guy put a zip tie on that because he, he wanted to trim his hedges with his lawnmower. And, you know, same kind of thing. So he zip tied the little safety bar down and then he fired the thing up and lifted it up and started doing his hedges and tripped and fell and cut his arm off or something and then sued Honda. <laughs> crap like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just people do weird crap. It's just Honda. Honda amazingly settled this case out of court just to keep it out of the headlines. And so the whole three-wheeler thing really hit them the hardest um, because they sold so many three-wheelers. I mean, they, they were selling them faster than they could make them in 84. There, a lot of the numbers came down. And as you know, up until, up until 1985, not so much the 250Rs, but all, a lot of the other models were really big, big sellers. Everybody wanted a three-wheeler. I think uh, Honda ATV sales in general led the way for a long time, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm sure that Honda was always the the sales leader in uh, three-wheeler sales without question. You know, all the different models that they had. I mean, there was so much stuff going on. So, I mean, every day was something. You know, even though I was racing – almost every weekend or being on the road sometimes up to six weeks at a time, just going across country and then flying back and forth and getting ready for other races. There was commercials and, and video shoots and brochure, brochure uh, photo shoots. 
Um, yeah, it was really a busy time. It was amazing how how busy that that era was for me when I when I joined Honda in like I said early '82. From being from humble backgrounds like we all grew up with, mm-hmm. wasn't it pretty amazing to step into that world? Nothing like you ever expected. Oh, no question. I mean, my my first trip to uh, the Honda headquarters at that time in Gardena was just awe-inspiring. You know, a lot of the little departments that they took me through and into the, you know, the road race and the motocross uh, areas, parts departments, just, yeah, just, you're right, just... Uh, it it exceeded my my thoughts of what it was going to be. No no doubt about it. Well, yeah, we had no idea what it was like, right? Well, I had an idea, but yeah, it, it was far far surpassed what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and we also had to go up there every almost every Wednesday. All the team riders had to drive up to Gardena to you know if there was time. You know, we were ordering parts. You know, we we were pretty um, active in the whole in the whole program as far as ordering parts and tires and getting stuff ready for the Baja races and, you know, restocking the, the team trucks and stuff like that. Mounting tires. I mean, all the, all the spare tires we, we mounted and aired up and balanced all of them. You know, all the riders did a lot of work towards those events. Isn't that contrary to what today, what you see, you don't see the riders do anything. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's not a factory, you know, type of uh, progression. I, I guess it is. Yeah, the, the teams now have got riders, and I think all of their help comes from the team that they put together to support them. So uh, it's it's the scale isn't anything like what what we had, but you know, again, uh, it was you know again forty. 40 years ago. So there's a, a lot of uh, changes that have gone on. I mean, even, even in the current motocross races now, the, I don't think the riders do nearly as much or as involved other than pretty much showing up and getting on the bike, you know, all their testing and stuff is done somewhere else. And they're, they're not involved so much with the support as we were as riders. Right. I don't, I don't think so at all. Now you got back in your day, the mechanic, could build the motor, do the shocks. He could do it all. Well, you got to remember too, we didn't even really have mechanics until the very tail end of 1984. And uh, initially in 85, um, they hired uh, Steve Carter to be a mechanic for Marty and myself, which uh, ultimately didn't work out. And uh, Steve decided to to wrench with Marty, and then they hired an uh, actual uh, current racer, a desert racer that ended amazingly ended up being the race team manager at Honda was uh, Chuck Miller. I think you met him at that reunion up there that we went to up in up in L.A. last year. Um, he was a really good. He won the Baja 1000 and, and won a lot of races for Honda. And so they hired him on to be my mechanic in about a third of the way through 1985. And that was, uh, then I think in 86, 
when the whole three world thing dropped out after 85, except for Marty, they, they kept Marty on for 1986, but Chuck actually went to Suzuki, um, which I did as well. I had a, a pro support deal uh, with Suzuki in 1986. Um, no, I, I take that back. Chuck went to Suzuki in 87 when they put their whole one year factory team together for the quads was in 1987. And Chuck was uh, Rodney Gentry. I think Rodney Gentry's mechanic at that time. And then after that full year, they Suzuki folded up that and Chuck went back to Honda and ultimately became the race team manager for road race, motocross, all their racing. So that was a lot of work for him. I don't know how long he held that position, but it was amazing that, uh, you know, he went up the ladder that far. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, Did you, uh, did you guys ever race the 350 X's at all? I don't think so. I know I never did. Um, It would have had to race in the open class, of course. And, uh, you know, again, in 1985, by 1985, um, the open class really became just that. It, it initially was like in motocross where you had to have a large displacement. I think Honda, um, at least with, with initially with the uh, promoters, had to have a minimum of 300 cc's. So we toyed with, uh, had a 480 that I raced at Riverside in, in 82 and won that event. Uh, it was a 480 cc motocross engine that uh, was installed in a 82 chassis. We had some pre-production 83 forks and all the aftermarket parts. That was a really fast bike, but you, you really needed a big, big track for uh, open class power because it would just spin the tires more, you know, if you did get hooked up with one of wheelie. So you, unfortunately the, most of the popular race tracks were far too small and, and tight for open class uh displaced machines and when in 83 when kawasaki came on board they didn't have like a 300 kit or a 350 kit and they wanted to be able to run in the open classes and again initially they had some real success because again the tracks were so small or so small that you know there's some of the stuff the 350s and things that honda was trying to promote were would just overpower the track so wheel spin was an issue and well, we started getting beat by 250s. So that ultimately didn't work out well for Honda. Um, so, and again, the, the promoters wanted to, you know, extend their their uh, options. So they, again, they ultimately just opened the open class to whatever you want, uh, you know, just open anything, 200, four-stroke, whatever, 350. And and that's pretty, really how it uh, ended up being is just run what you brung in the open class and, Again, it ultimately kind of lost lost popularity after a short time because it just I don't know. To me, anyway, it was to me it should always been you know true large displacement uh, machines to run in the open class. You know, I kind of equated to like the motorcycles the same thing with with further development. You know, two fifty cc motocross bikes became quicker than the open class bikes of yore. And uh, to the point where even the AMA actually ended up dropping the 500cc class, you know, and then shortly after that, they stopped making 500cc, you know, bikes, two-stroke ones anyway. Well, that, that's CR500 or the KX500. 
That was a lot of machine. Oh yeah, they were. And uh, again, previously, you know, maybe a decade or, or so sooner before they had developed bikes to the point where they are now, um, you know, only your best riders, you know, Brock Glover, David Bailey, Rick Johnson, those guys would race and get involved with the op- what they considered the open class. Um, but again, uh, after, you know, by the time the late 80s, early 90s came around with the development and the handling of the 250s and, you know, guys were being able to turn faster lap times on 250s than they could on 500s. So again, the the sales of those bikes and the promotion of those races kind of waned. So the AMA just dropped that class altogether. And again, that's pretty much what happened with the with the ATVs, I think, too. They just, you know, dropped a lot of the classes that they had. I mean, some of our events, I can remember back in the day, there was so, so many entries. I mean, it, you know, the qualifications and heat races would take place during the latter part of the week to whittle the numbers down for the the semis and the heat races and main events. Um but uh, again, you know, some of that some of that went away with the loss of interest in the open class. I remember we went to Porterville one year, and my class raced its main event at four in the morning. Yeah, yeah, that I can remember a, a situation like that too. And actually, at one of the nationals, um, unfortunately, which was really uh, to me. Uh, um, a bad choice for for the whole ATV racing and the AMA trying to get involved in 1985 is they let these promoters that really didn't have racetracks or anything like that put something together for a national caliber event. I mean, you got the world's greatest riders showing up to these racetracks that were maybe built that day. Um, they might have had a facility like a, you know, like an El Cajon Speedway or something, but there were so many established tracks like, uh, you know, Saddleback and Gainesville and you name it, the same areas that have, you know, established motocross races for, for decades. But instead of utilizing those uh, facilities, they would go to the what I called podunk little dog and pony places where the tracks were terrible and they were non-competitive and, you know, getting back to what you said about four in the morning, we had this one race. It was in Hialeah, Florida. And our main event didn't take place until like two 30 in the morning either. And the track was just horrible. It was, it was such a one liner that the start, you just might as well had a drag race to pretty much determine the winner because once you went around the first turn, that's pretty much your position at the finish because you couldn't pass. Uh, you know, uh, it was really frustrating for me. And I believe most of the riders in general back then that uh, it was just, I would say probably more than 50% of the races were these little flat track races that were sometimes held at, uh, you know, the town's fairgrounds that year in the summer or whatnot, they had their, their county fair and, you know, they might have had a little bull ring or something to put, it was just, was nuts and, and kind of depressing, but that's, that's what we raced. And uh, what are you going to do? You know? It, right. What, what are you going to do? Did I you- think it led into a number of unfortunate wrecks and uh, 
too many close calls. And again, just a lot of classes and super long days and uh, to try and get everything in to, you know, for a Sunday event or a Saturday event was just, again, just miss, uh, mismanaged and just not well, well thought out. I don't know. Again, there was a lot of TT racetracks that we did join a couple of them that were, you know, specifically motorcycle oriented, but we, we never, for whatever reason, uh, piggybacked with those events to really put on a good show. And, um, you know, I remember one of the races that we had the national caliber event was in 1987 was in Ohio. And I had some relatives and stuff that were in Indiana and Ohio and, you know, actually toted my, my little brother out there. And, uh, this racetrack, if you can imagine, was just a real small, I'm guessing maybe 100 yards long. And the racetrack was basically just had a, a big pole, orange pole at each end and, you know, two and three rows of ATVs. You had little qualifying things. And the, the first turn was just a nightmare. I mean, it had, you know, five and six restarts because there was always a giant pileup in the first turn because basically you're just doing a 180-degree turn and you're racing back down this backstretch and you're just doing this crazy little oval. And I was almost embarrassed about that. But, again, it's just uh, I, I can see why the, the AMA really initially didn't, you know, didn't want to accept ATV racing. I, I don't know what, what did, happened did, there, but wasn't it, it the AMA's fault that they, they were going to these tracks? Because I, I AMA it was, picked those yeah. tracks. I, I I believe uh, the majority of it was, and they had um, you know if you call the AMA right now, the first year that they got involved, which was I feel another reason, like you said, that some of these racetracks, uh, they called it the AATVA. And they had they elected this president named Roy Jansen, and he came to every event, and they were promoting the heck out of it, um, you know. But we really went to very few racetracks that were established and and organized race facilities, you know. Um, and we went to some, but again, some of these other ones like Hialeah, and uh, they had one in Kansas. It was the same way, just these real little tiny tight uncompetitive racetracks that were just really frustrating to, to go to. And, and, you know, just, uh, yeah, I mean, again, but yeah, I think it was the AMA. And if you, if you even contact the AMA now, they'll tell you that they have no records of the 1985 season, which is the first one that they, they produced. And the other thing that they, they took away was the, the large purses, you know, that, uh, Oh, the previous big ATV promoter at the time, um, can't recall his name right now, really a good guy. He was getting these Toyotas and getting these, you know, 40 and $50,000 purses for the pro races. And so, you know, we were making really good money up until that time. But when the AMA got involved, there was no more big purses, you know, it was, it was significantly reduced. So that was another bummer for them. Yeah, because they were they were taking the sponsor money. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was really really significantly less money. I mean, I can remember winning ten fifteen thousand dollars from just the track money. That didn't include Honda win money or bonus money. 
but um, yeah, once the AMA got involved, that all went away. And again, they, they'll claim in 1985, they've got no records. They couldn't tell you who won the races, like never existed because there was a lot, a lot of just underhanded things that were going on that year. So anyway, it's all water under the bridge now. Right. That's just, it's a bummer to hear it that way, even though uh, you like to look back on those times and, you know, cherish them to a point because that's got really got it all started. Well, I mean, it was started, you know, before then and things were really going good, but I could see the same thing. I mean, there was so much, again, I came back to the sales and the popularity of three wheelers and the AMA just really wanted to get a piece of that. They could see that, you know, Hey, this is bigger than motocross and road racing because of the numbers alone of how many three wheelers they were selling compared. I mean, we had numbers in 84, you know, Honda made cars and lawnmowers and street bikes and they had two stroke dirt bikes and four stroke dirt bikes and CRs and XRs combined. And this is overall sales of everything that Honda sold. CRs and XRs combined was one-tenth of 1% of Honda's overall sales. Three-wheelers were 40%. Mm. Yet, yet the motocross team had million-dollar budget, you know, to go to the stadiums and have the best mechanics and all that. All our purses and, and expense money came directly from sales. So it just shows you how much money there was out there from sales alone. We didn't have a, a particular budget set aside like the other road race and flat track and motocross teams did. But, um, yeah, everybody wanted a piece of that pie because, it was, again, it was so popular. Um, so, yeah, I can see why the AMA wanted, to, wanted a piece of it. And they, they really did spend a lot. But then once the three-wheeler thing happened after their first season in 85, when that 2020 thing came out, I think they had a lot of egg on their face. So now all of a sudden, what are we going to do? You know, now that things are dangerous and we're, we're, you know, taking everybody's $40 for their yearly AMA license and stuff like that. So they were, they were trying to make money on it too. No doubt. Right. (laughs) Oh man. I just, uh, so, um, somebody's asking ATV racing was bigger in 84 and 85 or the boom in the early 2000s. I think it was bigger in the in the 84-85. I, I believe that uh, the heyday was 84-85. Um, I know in, in 86, three-wheeler racing was really on the decline. There was only, I think, most of the riders, like myself, there was a couple that stayed with it, mainly because they had contracts that probably uh, went through 86. But you know, by 87, there were no more three-wheeler races. They were all banned, so it all turned into quad racing in 87. And I was fortunate enough to have a two-year contract with Yamaha in 87 and 88. But even at the beginning of 1988, I was informed by, by my race team manager that there would be no more factory support at the end of the year. So by 89, there was, there was nothing going on for any type of ATV racing at all. Yeah, that that was that was rough because mm-hmm. it, it was so big, and then it just gone. Yeah. It was completely gone. Um, even even my deal. Well, in '86, like I said, I left Honda at the end of '85. 
my very, very last race for Honda was the 1985 Baja 1000, which my team won. And then in 86, I was able to bring back all my sponsors. I think we talked about that previously is that in 1985, to be on Team Honda, you had to drop all your sponsors. You couldn't have a Bell Ray or a Hoosier Tire or an Oakley Goggle or a CD Boots. All these sponsors that we had we, to ride a Honda in 85, you had to divorce yourself from all your sponsors. And you had to use Honda-lined lubricants and tires and apparel. Everything had to be Honda. And that didn't, never sat well with me. And, and I'm not sure... I'm sure it wasn't as very fun for the other riders either, but you know, that, that was uh, another thorn in my side for 85. So in 86, I was able to get back. All my sponsors were all the same way. They're all excited too, to continue racing with this new four wheel ATV format and DG performance linked me up with uh, Suzuki. And I had the same, same deal as Gary Denton and a number of those guys that were getting the same deal bikes and parts. And I still had a really lucrative contract with DG for that year. And towards the end of the 86, Suzuki was um, starting to put together a team for that 87 year where they wanted to have a full factory team, which they did. And Pat Alexander and a couple of guys, I was in talks to, to be part of that team. And uh, about a couple of weeks after my first official sit down meeting with Suzuki, I get contacted by Yamaha and they want to uh, hire me to be ride for them because they want to introduce the Banshee at the 1986 Baja 1000. And, you know, it's always at the end of the year, November of every year is when they hold the Baja 1000. So, you know, going back and forth, Suzuki didn't want to do anything but short course racing. That was it. That was their entire uh, budget and races they wanted to do. Um, they, I don't even know if the Mickey Thompson events were, were part of that deal, but Yamaha wanted to do everything. They wanted to introduce the Banshee at the Baja 1000, which we ended up winning first and second place. And then to get all the nationals and Mickey Thompson's, everything was, you know, open for Yamaha. So I ended up going with the Yamaha deal and I signed with them in, in 87 and kind of glad I did, because like I said, the Suzuki deal only lasted one season and then they dropped everything. And I was able to, you know, continue on for another year with Yamaha going to the Nationals and Mickey Thompson races, wherever I wanted to race. It was uh, all up to me. And, you know, per diem, I didn't have a, a big contract like I did with when I was with Honda, but I was still, you know, able to make a living and make good money racing through 1988. So a lot of fun. You know, this is a personal question, but that time you spent with Honda and Yamaha, and the Suzuki deal, did that set you up for a better life, you know, early on, on as a young man, you know, giving you resources that, oh, that people didn't have? You certainly, know? certainly. I mean, uh, I worked at my previous employer where I retired from, um, worked there for going on 31 years, and I've got a great pension. Um, you know, the things that the, the racing didn't um, provide was any guarantees. I mean, if you even in all our contracts, if you couldn't perform for three weeks 
straight, like if you had some injury or something, then they could drop you and terminate your contract. So a lot of, you know, potential, obviously racing is, uh, can be, you know, dangerous and you can get busted up. So fortunately that never happened for me, but it did for some, um, they never really enforced that too much. Cause I don't think any of the, well, we did have some, as you know, Mike Chester was seriously injured and Ace Williams was too, but Again, that was, uh, you know, part of the contract was that they could ter- be terminated if, you know, due to injury. But getting back to your question, yes, I, I made more money in the, in, for a year anyway, salary-wise, in 84 and 85 with Honda because they had lucrative uh, championship money on top of salaries. So, yeah, my overall yearly salary, even back in 85, was more than I ever earned in my 30 years at uh, my previous employer. Just a little bit more. I mean, you know, 30 years later, cost of living and inflation and raises and stuff. It got me close, but I never made the kind of money that I did when I, when I was racing for Honda. Wow. Yeah. So setting yourself up, you, yeah. you seemed always really smart with your money as long as, cause I got to watch, you from a distance and you always seemed really smart with where you put your money and, and how you took care of yourself. So, um, well, I, I lost a lot of money. I unfortunately, um, did have some marital issues and there was, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars lost in that, that aspect, but I did, I was again, but you're right. I was able to, move on with my life and uh, purchase a number of things younger and in, in, in age than I would have ever been able to do if I had, you know, regular jobs that uh, wouldn't been nearly as lucrative, you know, the homes and things that I was able to obtain and cars. Uh, yeah. That was clearly a benefit of being able to be successful ATV racer. I mean, there was, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, competition out there and I don't know, really you know all that stuff was just between the rider and and uh and the management but um i had some pretty lucrative deals when and you i think that walk- comes that, that comes from from winning you know that was the name of the game right right when you walked away in 88 and and you raced your last race did you miss it um no because I knew that uh, the same thing, that after the season, there would be no more, uh, no more significant income. The money was going to dry up. All the sponsors and stuff that supported me and, and all of my sponsors not only supported me with their product, but I also had cash bonus money coming from them for, for, for finishes and even just you know salaries directly from them, that that was all going to dry up. So. I, I knew that I was going to have to, um, you know, find a, a job that was going to be able to continue to support my mortgage and things like that, which I was able to do. I mean, I, I was, you know, trying to do the right thing and look forward and knew that sooner or later my racing career was going to end regardless if, if there was factory support or not. I mean, nobody can race forever, you know. You look at any of these guys, you know, Dungey, Hannah, all these guys, you know, there comes a time where it's time to move on with your life. And, uh, but again, looking back and, you know, to your question, yeah, the, the, the earnings that I made did, did supply me and set me up with a number of, uh, 
issues that or not issues, but uh, items that uh, helped me out significantly in early in life. But you never had the desire to go race after you walked away. Uh, I did actually. I mean, um, there was a number of races actually that I wanted to do. In 1985, I won the Colorado State National, and uh, that was in uh, the race. There, same thing. That was a beautiful event. It was held at a you know at an established uh, race facility. Excellent course. Um, I won. Was happy. I'd won the previous event too at uh, Loretta Lynn's the week before, and it was you know things were going well, and I approached the because they're there in Colorado Springs, the Pikes Peak Hill Climb Committee about racing my three-wheeler on the hill. And at the time, unfortunately, they they declined it because they had a number of years previous, they had a motorcycle fatality where a spectator ran across the course during the motorcycle race and got hit by a, by a participant. And uh, the motorcycle racer was was had a fatal uh, injury. So they stopped letting uh, motorcycles race. So I retired in 88, but then in 1993, I think after a number of, a lot of pressure from racers and, and uh, manufacturers, they decided to uh, let motorcycles and ATVs on the hill. And so I contacted all of my sponsors and you know Yamaha, everybody that helped me out in the past came on board and uh, I didn't have really any out-of-pocket expenses, and Sam and, and a couple of other people really busted their butt to build an engine that would run at altitude. And you, you remember this a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Was uh, we went to Pikes Peak and we won that event, and that was you know five years after I'd retired. So that was uh, that was kind of a bucket list item for me. I think your rider was Mark Earhart. Uh, that first event they had, he I think he ended up third there. And I won, and um, that was, you know, something. That was probably my my most gratifying win in my whole career was, you know, getting back, like, my roots. When I first started racing, uh, my entire – the three-wheeler that I raced was actually Sam's. And, uh, you know, he supported me from even prior to the 250Rs being out. I was racing his uh, modified 110 prior to that. He actually went out and bought a brand-new – 81 250R specifically for me to race because I, you know, I, I was actually my uh, actual, uh, um, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but um, I had a delayed uh, entry into the Air Force. I was going into the Air Force. I was actually living on my brother's couch. I'd gotten rid of and sold almost all of my personal belongings. And uh, at the end of a month, I was going in the Air Force, sleeping on my brother's couch. And um, phone rings in the middle of the night it's like 12 or one o'clock and uh i think it was waxeldorfer called to see if i could fill in for one of the injured riders the the houston supercross was coming up and honda was doing their you know in between motos uh exhibition things and they're racing three-wheelers at those races and i was like yeah sure after i figured out that i wasn't a prank call and um <laughs> I uh, I ended up going there and Wes McCoy was the manager and we went and basically he told me on the starting line, it was that Dean, Dean had the win. The only way that, you know, I would could try and go for the win is if Dean wrecked. 
which didn't matter to me. I mean, you know, I knew Dean already from racing against him, you know, almost every week at South Bay. And um, I ended up whole shot in the race, but, uh, you know, quickly looked over. Dean was behind me and I let him pass and I just shadowed him the whole race and got second. And uh, from that point on, that was my fork in the road. And I got out of my entry into the Air Force and signed on with American Honda. That's pretty awesome. Uh, it, there was a question in the in the comments. The to clarification: Did you win the last three wheeler race that Score held, or was it you, you just won the last one when Honda supported you? It may have been the very last race because, again, by 1986, with all the fallout, uh, it's highly possible that Score also didn't allow three wheelers to race anymore. Um, so again, and I won it in 85 on a three wheeler, Tracy Dixon, myself and Stevie Wright was the B team. We ended up winning, had a flawless ride. And like I said, um, at the end of, or towards the middle, I forget exactly when, but when I was approached by Yamaha because they wanted to debut the Banshee the following year, they knew that, you know, I had won that event. I had raced the Baja 1000 five times at that point and won it four years in a row in my class. So they approached Dean and myself to, uh, you know, ride the Banshee to debut it at the 1986 Baja 1000, which we did. And it was, it was really a good time. I mean, Yamaha, uh, different than Honda was, you know, spending all kinds of money, had helicopters and, you know, they really, really had a, a full-on factory effort on that that banshee to develop it to uh with a lot of our aid to make that thing worthy and to make sure it finished the race and to to win it was it was an excellent effort i mean it was again no expenses spared and um the people at yamaha were really the people that they had involved were really all professional um they treated us super good. I mean, I, I, I really admire the, the effort that Yamaha put in in those two years that I was with them. It was, it was outstanding. That's, that's awesome stuff, <laughs> you know, that, that you got to go do that. Um, early in our conversation, we talked about your uh, – it's a sport touring bike that you have, correct? It's an adventure bike. It's a KTM uh, 890 uh, Adventure R. It's a, a really outstanding, uh, call it an adventure bike. It's really just kind of like a big dirt bike. So it's got excellent. You can ride it in the dirt and on the street. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, and it's really, I'd say it's a good 50, 50 bike. It's an outstanding street bike and it's an outstanding dirt bike. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, as nimble as say a 500 EXC or a 450 L um you know it's over 400 pounds but the way they designed it with the the tank and the low slung fuel it's it's amazing how how that thing handles off road and i don't know if you've seen any of the commercials or some of the tests with uh, that they've done with this bike i mean they even they even have a class form at the erzberg rodeo they ride those big things there really? they they really they really have developed an outstanding bike and I have a lot of fun on it. I, I had some more, I guess you'd call them dual sport bikes, you know, a big single cylinder, um, kind of street legal dirt bike. 
and they're a lot of fun. And I've had those a number. I've had mostly Honda XLs, XR, 500s, 600s. But um, again, like anything, developing that this, uh, they started with a 790. They've had whatever reason KTM likes to end everything in a 90, but 690s, 790s, 990s, 1290s. They, uh, this 890 was a really sweet spot for KTM. And um, I, I don't think you're probably too familiar with them. But uh, again, that's uh, carry the fuel real low on the chassis. So it, it handles much more nimble than, than the weight of the bike would, would uh, you know, where I was to. Where I was going with it is, is the fact yeah. that you're still an active enthusiast and a rider you may not be riding a three-wheeler or a four-wheeler but you're out experiencing motorsports in still even though you haven't raced in a number of years and and um you're still you're still young but you're older well i'm 63 um but yeah i would you know there was a time before three-wheelers even and i think almost all of the all of the experienced and successful pros, I think, even in ATV racing, at least in my era, all had motorcycle backgrounds. I mean, you know, we all learned how to ride motorcycles and race motorcycles. And then the three-wheelers came along and a number of us, you know, happened to like those and, and got involved again. I think we we're a lot of us were just in the right place at the right time and jumped on that bandwagon and uh, rode it out. Um, you know, Gary Denton was a former motocross rider. He got involved and, you know, he came in and I think a lot of his success is because of his, uh, motorcycle background. I think, um, when the factories all, you know, dropped out, I think most of the top rank ATV talent at that time, anyway, I mean, there was a lot of guys that were coming up, they were privateers because really after 1988, everybody was a privateer. So there wasn't as much emphasis on, you know, going after the top riders, but, you know, Gary Denton was there and I think he had just won that 87 national championship. And then in 88 kind of felt like I did in 85 that, you know, he's got a lot of talent left and, you know, went on his privateer deal and was able to, you know, win a, a number of championships in a row because, you know, of his experience and his, uh, um, you know, years of, uh, racing competitively at, at a high level. So I think he was probably schooling a lot of the guys that he was racing at that time. They all looked up to him. And um, by the time he was getting done, he had, he uh, kind of like Dean Sundahl did for three wheelers, you know, I looked up to him and he was the fast guy early on back in the, you know, little modified 90 days. And uh, early on for three wheelers, you know, when the 250 R's came out, he, he was very successful likable um and uh, i still think that he's he should be the the guy in the ama i don't, I don't know he how he got missed i mean you know nothing against gary gary was very successful but the reality was is he only kind of raced one one style of race which was those short course races won a number of championships but they call them atvs for a reason he never raced desert you know, racing and there was a lot of score stuff going on. And um, yet, you know, for whatever reason, I, again, I think a lot of it had to do with his motocross background and most of the AMA, like I said, we talked earlier is they, 
kind of had a, a bad taste in their mouth with ATV. So I think that's why it took such a long time before they decided to bring somebody in the Hall of Fame. And the fact that he had a, you know, initially had a motorcycle background and a lot of friends like Brock Glover and the guys from our area, you know, to help him to get in there. Um, well, uh, I have two questions for you, but Felipe Valles from San Felipe just asked you to ride the thousand with him. Uh, <laughs> um, he's listening and he's been affiliated with the one a machine for the, as long as I can remember in the, the I would say the past 10, 12 years. And, um, Another question was asked from Joe Tolley at ATV On Demand. Um, the performance from the ATC 250R to the LT 250, uh, um, I believe he's asking um, engine performance-wise, how did, what, were, what were the big difference? Not the conversion where you put the RM motor in there, yeah. but the LT. Well, I, I think uh, getting back to the first guy, um, I appreciate the uh, offer, but uh, I've got no uh, desire to go to go race anymore. I'm just uh, just happy to to go ride and, and you know at my own pace and get out there in the in the country. There's so many areas in the U.S. that I want to enjoy. That you know, there's more more dirt roads in in the nation than there are paved roads as far as mileage goes. And they've they've got a couple of uh, really cool places. I want to do this. Uh, event that's uh goes from new mexico all the way to canada basically on the east side of the rocky mountains um that's on my bucket list that i want to do one of these days but um you know getting back to him i appreciate the offer i've i raced the baja 1000 seven times there was a lot of races that i that i baja 500 san felipe 250 lucerne i've eaten a lot of dust you know the frontier 500s um and then moving on to the LT250, yeah, the initial 85, 86 Suzuki engine was very, you know, mediocre. I mean, guys could get good power out of them. I don't think they were very reliable. Um, and when I did race for Suzuki in 86, the first thing that Mark Dooley had me do was to go buy an RM250 to have my brother put the engine in the, the quad racer chassis. And I think we talked about this before. Amazingly, it was a bolt in deal. The, like a lot of manufacturers at the time, um, a lot of their specs were, were very similar for their machines. So all, every single one of the motor mount bolts lined up perfectly. The swing arm where the swing arm pivot went through same place, the chain counter sprocket lined up perfect with the rear sprocket. The only real modification that my brother had to make was the fact that the RM had a centrally located uh, exhaust port and the early uh, LT250s had the side one. So the, the chassis had a single down tube. So my brother had to cut that off and weld in a loop like the later chassis had for the exhaust to go out the middle. And Mark Dooley hand rolled and pounded out a really nice expansion chamber for that he had the rm250 pipe specs but i actually helped him build the pipe for the quad and the thing was a rocket uh, i won so many races with that rm uh powered suzuki it was crazy i think i won almost every single event that they had at carlsbad on that tt race that we had up there twice a month 
uh, raced it at the, that Marty Tripes put together. You probably remember that one, the four or five race series that he had at El Cajon Speedway. It was kind of like a mini Mickey Thompson thing. I think I won. I know I won that championship. Um, but yeah, wherever I raced that thing, I was running at the front. In fact, the the real thing that I attribute entirely to that machine was the fact that there was a small group of riders. Um, Watts, I think, was was had the same deal as I did in 86. Again, we had pro support deals. We had bikes and parts. And they were at uh, the Atlanta that uh, I think they called it Speedway 395 up in the desert. Had a real nice facility there. And at the time, I think it was the um, Golden State Series. And Suzuki was uh, was paying this contingency money to to hit these events so that you know the motocross riders had their normal uh two moto format and the quad racers would come up there and race in the intermission <laughs> the funny thing was is that if you're on a motorcycle and you say you won both motos your your contingency money from from winning the race and from suzuki was less than the quad racers were getting for just running one moto and i think we only ran half as many laps too but uh, so I was hitting all those races and winning. And again, they had engineers and they were testing the whole week prior to that event. And we went up there with mine and I went up there and kicked all their butts. And these engineers that had their broken English, they came over and looked at the, our machine and were taking pictures. And, uh, you know, the engine was blue. Um, and the following year in 87, Basically, the 87 quad racer was just a, you know, updated version of my quad. They changed the engine, you know, the whole bore and stroke and entirely different from that little uh, enduro engine that they had in 85 and 86. And I attribute that entirely to, to, to what Sam and Dooley did with my 86. And Briggs built suspension. The thing handled great. I mean, that Overall, for the one year that I had that Suzuki, it was it was an incredible quad. Like I said, I, I won so many races. I made a lot of money in that year. And I was ready to go race for Suzuki in 87 and be on that team. Uh, probably would have got rejoined with Chuck Miller again. But again, the, they only wanted to do short course events in the Nationals. And I had had my fill of these podunk racetracks at the Nationals, like we discussed earlier. And Yamaha wanted to still do score events and let me go race wherever I wanted. So. That was an easy decision for me, but um, one more, yeah, I, one more ca question in the chat. Okay, um, and I think you answered this earlier, but we'll 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 ask it again. When you retire from racing, mm -hmm. what does it feel like? And I mean, because you spend all your time training, you're learning these machines. It's it's a go 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 environment, and then it's not. Well, for me, um, it was a, a to me it was a happy ending. Um, I knew, like I said, Yamaha was very professional. It was the to come to me at the beginning of the '88 season and, and tell me, like you know, we're going to support you fully. We're we're out to win everything, and uh, but at the end of the year, we're we're done. Whereas with Honda, when I left them, there was a lot of deception, unfortunately. A lot of, um, and I, I don't really want to go into it because, you know, it's a lot of it's kind of untasteful. And, um, but they weren't honest. They weren't, they weren't straight up. You know, they, 
they kept me uh, misinformed about what was going to happen in 86. I think specifically to keep me from potentially going with a Kawasaki or, or a Yamaha to be, you know, a direct competitor against them the following year. I mean, I, in my mind, I knew I was already going to be on a quad, but the, my ending there was, was, was kind of sour. But, and with the Yamaha deal and my ultimate retirement, I knew I had a whole year to sort everything out. I already had my whole agenda. I knew where my last race, my very last race was going to be. And the other thing was, is, uh, you know, I was going to be a father. My, my daughter was born in 1989 and it was just kind of a perfect timing for me because I really knew that I shouldn't be racing. You know, I didn't want to have any, you know, I'd been very lucky my entire career and I didn't feel it was worth the risk of, you know, having a major injury or, you know, a catastrophe of becoming paralyzed or something and, you know, trying to raise my kid in that regard. So yeah, it was, I had no regrets. Uh, the last, actually the, it kind of was funny because the very, very last race they had at Riverside Raceway was also my very last, um, professional race and uh i was racing a yamaha with a with a atv it was a 250 cc single in a banshee frame and i was very competitive on that but unfortunately had a foot peg and nerf bar failure during the main event and dnf so didn't have a a, a good finish at that last event but again that was the i was there and you know, got a lot of good pictures from that event and, uh, you know, supported Yamaha. They were happy with everything. And, um, you know, I'd already, again, had a lot of things already set in motion. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, wasn't a hard, hard, uh, ending at all. I, I was kind of looking forward to it and starting a new chapter in my life and becoming a dad. And that's the way it ended. Like I said, I did, I did come out of retirement for the 1993, um, Pikes Peak race, which, um, you know, was a lot of fun as well. And, uh, ultimately was probably the most gratifying race of my whole career was, was winning that. And with my brother, I had a old 68 Ford pickup truck and we borrowed a trailer to haul everything up there in. And, you know, it, it was beautiful because I was, had a, a chance to once again, work with all my longtime sponsors and to, you know, give them an added juice, you know, with Yamaha went in for them and, Bell Ray and DG and Dico and I think it was Douglas Wheel by that point, but yeah, everybody was happy because of my previous years of uh, supporting them, you know, and and talking up their products. So I had JT uh, apparel sponsor. Um, yeah, it, it, it was all good. It was all good. It was a happy ending for me. <laughs> well, that's that's we're glad for that, and I really appreciate you taking the time to tell more of your story live here on Instagram. Uh, there's people that are still uh, your favorite discipline. Uh, well, the last question, and then I'll let you go for the night. Uh, Desert MX, TT, or Mickey's? Well, I would have to say motocross. Um, there was just so many. that I, I look at the motocross and my favorite racetrack of all time, and I, I think most of my peers would agree, was Saddleback Park. Um, I don't know if you ever raced there, but that was the premier ATV racetrack. No excuses. Um, you know, three wide racing. The track was wide. The passing was never an issue. Um, 
Mickey Thompson races early were really good. Um, but ultimately there was, you know, same kind of thing, politics. And they went into this, you, you probably remember a two wide start with just, you know, a long row of, of competitors and guys would sandbag to then, you know, start in the front at the main event where early on it was just a mass start, like a motocross race. You just had one row of competitors and, you know, everybody went for the first turn, which was what most people were, were accustomed to. And, um, but yeah, again, things evolve. So Desert racing, I always admire too. Um, but as you know, desert racing is a very hard discipline. There's really no spectators to speak of. Um, if anybody's there, that you know, you come, you go by, and that's it. You know, so uh, uh, yeah, desert racing is 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 its own breed. Um, score events, I, I admired and and I I love doing the desert races. Um, but again, as far as uh, being a favorite and the way I rode, um, yeah, I, I think I think Saddleback Park would be more uh, of considered a motocross event. Um, very good TT racing. Um, I did like ovals. I, I like true TT races. But again, most of the what they considered flat track racing back in in my um, in my career. The tracks really weren't competitive, unfortunately. They they there was a couple places like San Jose was good, but again, the majority of the of the TT racetracks were were held on um, racetracks that really weren't established. Like we talked earlier, right. they weren't established race facilities, so the tracks were miserable and kind of disheartening. And again, like you said, two a.m. starts. The the promoters just didn't have their stuff together. I, I, again, I don't even know how some of these guys got these these deals to even hold a national event because again, it was just almost pathetic that we raced at them. Yeah. Some of it was rough, but there, but it led to some pretty great stuff. And, and Oh yeah. I mean, again, I, I, the, the good times farly outweighed the bad. It was just unfortunate. Like I said, at the time that that's the course that it took. Um, I, I knew that, you know, again, you could see some of the, there's even some old footage on YouTube where some of these races and racetracks, you, you just wonder, man, how, how did they ever establish these formats? Because the racetracks were so tiny and, you know, ATVs are wide, you know, again, whoever got, whoever got the whole shot was going to win um, pretty much. So, the, um, yeah, I mean, the true TTs, I mean, one year, um, but one event only, and it was also in the Houston Astrodome. We went for a halftime show at the Houston Astrodome TT race, where they're actually holding an AMA flat track race, where there's only one turn where it goes inboard, and there's a small little jump, you know, and there's one right hand turn. And we went there. We didn't only had like a few laps of practice, and then we had had our event. But even even with the ten or fifteen minutes that we had on the track, our lap times were faster than the national pro flat track racers on their 500s. So the crowd dug it, man. I, I could hear the crowd screaming through all the noise in the, in the competition. I, I was really stoked. And again, why, why the three-wheeler racing TT races didn't piggyback with the national flat track races was always what I questioned. When we went to these points, well, why do we race the AMA? You know, even if it's the following day or the next weekend, the track's still there that's a real racetrack, you know, right. but again, I'd say 
99% of the flat track races that we were TT races, as they called them, were never held at established racing facilities, unfortunately. So it's a shame. It's a it shame a they let it be like that. Because we uh, we could have really put on a good show. I mean, as you know, ATVs can really rock around a, a nice TT track. But if you don't have a competitive one or, you know, you're just racing little hairpin turn back and forth, that doesn't really lead up to much, uh, much excitement for the fans or the riders. Right conditions. I think ATV, three-wheelers, four-wheelers, under the lights on a TT track is... Oh, yeah the place for them because they just they just look so bitching they do and you, you probably remember um uh, it's probably uh early 90s uh, maybe late 90s when um we were able to get the atvs up at barona yeah and we were on that oval and we used their format the crowd dug it you know we had qualifying rolling starts just like the car so they they could you know grasp onto it you know it's just kind of like nascar racing we didn't have we went to their format so they could understand what was going on and the races were good there was never really any bad crashes or nothing the atvs put on an outstanding performance an outstanding show the crowd dug it and they did that for a whole season and then for whatever reason you know it went away funding politics who knows yeah but I'm saying is that on on a proper a proper track and and something that's uh, designed for that's already established, you know, you've already got a racetrack and they're racing cars on it, makes it easy to put ATVs on it and have competitive events. You know, we did that whole three wide, you know, had all those guys, and I I really like doing that racing. You know, Sam was riding it then, and I was trying to promote it, and uh, you know, it was kind of the steward there, and I think everybody was always happy with uh, the results and how it went down and the format and everything was easy to follow. Again, it was exactly like the cars. It, it was a good time. I, again, I just, when I look back, I wish that we would have had more of that with ATVs back in the day. I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. One of the guys uh, wanted to know, uh, I believe you touched on this, not on this show, but before you actually got to go back and race Pine Lake. Yeah, you know, um, I actually raced Pine Lake, what, four times total. Um, the first two times were, were professional races with Honda. It was 1984. And um, amazingly, back in 1984, there wasn't, they weren't so strict. And uh, Honda was a little cooler. Right? I, I had a, from 1981 on, I bought a new jet ski every year. I would sell it at the end of the season and next year. Cause you know, like motorcycles, they made my new changes and made them better. And then I forget when they came out with the 550. but anyway, McCoy let us take jet skis. They had that big trailer. They pulled it to the races and they had room in it. So we were able to take our jet skis and that race is in the middle of the summer and it's hot and humid back there. So we were able to take our jet skis and we had good results in 1984, but then, at the end of the season, I said so many rules and things changed in 85 with the Honda line only. And I think that we went through all the way because even the motocross guys rode jet skis. And we then all of a sudden, anything that wasn't Honda was off limits. So we went back there in 85 and I won the 250 and the open class on my three-wheeler. I beat Jimmy White both in both events. And then that was it. But then, in, uh, I don't know if you went back there. I know your brother was there. They had a, a Legends event thing in the year 2000 at Pine Lake. 
but they weren't racing three wheelers. So we went back there and, um, you know, I hadn't even hadn't done anything with motorcycles or anything. Uh, I was raising my family since 1993. That was the event was seven years later. And I raced uh, a Honda four tracks, which I'd never, ever even ridden before. Uh, somehow got a whole shot and was leading my heat race. And then we had a main event and I finished fourth in the main, uh, which was good. Like I said, my, I hadn't ridden in so long. My arms pumped up really bad, like a third or fourth lap, which was, was still ma- mainly a fun event. Gary Denton ran away with the win. And uh, that was a lot of fun if that's why. But then they had a, a 50th anniversary thing that they had just a few years back in 2019, where they invited all past champions to come back. And uh, a few years earlier, I think probably in uh, what 2014 or 2013, um, Pine Lake, the owners and promoters there, you know, mainly the three wheeler things went away due to the AMA. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't promote or, or have anything to do with anything with three wheelers and Pine Lake, uh, management decided well, forget you we'll just do our own thing and they started racing three-wheelers again they had a lot of, of activities going on and so in 2019 when they had their 50th anniversary race dave ham got a hold of me actually i met him earlier and he he basically got me uh motivated to come back to that event and that he would be able to supply me a machine if i decided to do the the legends race there and dean sundahl all the you know jimmy white Dean, uh, Curtis Sparks, uh, a lot of guys showed up for that, myself included, and they did have a, a Legends event. We raced three-wheelers again, and I was fortunate enough to win that five-lap race. So that was a lot of fun. And again, I hadn't, I hadn't ridden a three-wheeler since 1986. So how many years is that? But, uh, you know, hey, it, it all came back. And it, the biggest thing I had to do is at some point, somewhere, all the ATV riders raised got raised on what the bikes came with these thumb throttles or like we touched on earlier all when i was in my area i learned how to ride motorcycles first so the first thing we always did was ditch that thumb throttle and put a twist throttle on it so i was lucky that i was able to find a twist throttle from some guy in the pits and convert the three-wheeler to a, a twist throttle and i made some pretty good laps around the track i think there's a couple even youtube videos on there about that that event that i won so that was a lot of fun to go back there. And so I'm, uh, I don't know, in, in actual races, I'm batting 500, batting 1,000. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome stuff, brother. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate you taking the time with us. Uh, I know that the people in the chat are loving it. And um, we'll have to get you to come back uh, and tell more stories later on. Hey, uh, you know, I, I've known you a long time and, you know, I just saw your dad here recently and, uh, you know, we're pretty much in, a, in the same neighborhood. I, I enjoy coming on your show and talking about the past because, yeah, I mean, that's where it really did all start. Um, I, I enjoyed being recognized as a pioneer of the sport, uh, not necessarily a legend as, as they try and promote it sometimes, but uh Again, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and kind of rode that whole three-wheeler wave out and ended my career on four-wheel ATVs, which all ended nice and sweet and happy and never got banged up too bad. And uh, so, yeah, my whole racing career was was uh, 
fairly successful and had a good time. Enjoyed it. Well, I appreciate it, brother. And like I said, yeah. we'll get you back on. And um, I'm glad that you ride a man's throttle instead of the girl's <laughs> throttle. Hey, you're the same way. I know you've learned how to ride a twist throttle. I don't know. What did, did Doug do? Did he use a twist? He did throttle. too, right? Twist yeah. Throttle. Yeah. These guys nowadays, man, you go to the races now, everybody uses a thumb throttle. I think because the age gap, when these guys were, you know, young, starting to ride, that's what, that's what they all had was a thumb throttle. So that's what they became used to. And they don't see how we could possibly ride with a twist throttle. And I'm just the opposite. I don't know how these guys can ride with a thumb throttle. Yeah. You have so much more control with the twist throttle. I agree. But, uh, you talk to some of these guys that go fast nowadays, they, they, they beg to differ. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you can ride with a twist. Right on. I agree. All right, brother, you have a great night. And again, thank you so much. I'm glad that, uh, that you could, uh, connect. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms, and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 